Welcome to another episode of Reformation Roundtable. This is episode number 48, and it is the audio of our Lord's Day service that took place on Sunday, May 30th, 2021. My apologies for the low quality audio in the following sermon. That was because our main recorder died halfway through the sermon, and so we were left with just the ambient audio from the video camera. The result of this is quite a bit of extraneous room noise that I just can't really do anything about to uh, edit out. So hopefully this will be a one-time issue, and we'll have all of those problems worked out by this coming Lord's Day. I hope you enjoy the sermon, and I hope you come join us for worship at Christ Covenant Church. Thank you so much for listening. Grace and peace to you from God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And also to you. Our call to worship this morning comes from Psalm 29, verses 1 through 4. Give unto the Lord, O you mighty ones. Give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Pray with me. Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thank you for calling us into your presence and promising us your Holy Spirit, which you poured out upon your people by the good and efficacious work of your Son, Jesus Christ. We don't deserve to be here by any work that we have done. It is not by our merit that we stand before you, but by the merit of King Jesus. We ask that you, Father, that you would mold and shape us this morning into a greater image of your Son as we seek to worship you by the power of the Spirit and the beauty of holiness. We ask this in the good and strong name of Jesus. And amen. Amen. In the book of Leviticus, in chapter 18, our fathers were told the following. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt, where you live. And you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules, and keep my statutes, and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. God had delivered our people out of the land of Egypt in a glorious way. He brought the mighty Egyptians to their knees so that even Pharaoh's advisors told him in Exodus chapter 10 that all of Egypt was ruined. The might and power of the Lord, of Yahweh, was known throughout the entire region. Egypt was in ruins and the surrounding kingdoms, quaking in fear, quickly found that they could not withstand the might of God's people when Israel was trusting God. So in the midst of this, God tells the Israelites that they must not follow the ways of the world. Not the ways of Egypt from which they had been delivered, nor the ways of Canaan, unto whose land and prosperity they had been promised. God is commanding his people to not do as they do in the land of Egypt, nor do as they do in the land of Canaan. Israel had been delivered from one enemy, and are on the cusp of driving out another enemy. And God clearly warns them to not imitate or emulate either of these people. On the surface, we might be tempted to ask, why on earth would they even want to? God's ways are clearly better. No one can stand against his mighty arm. 
Why would we even be tempted to follow their clearly inferior ways? Well, as we, have, as we all know, and as we have known since Adam's fall in the garden, sin makes us stupid. God in his kindness knows how easily we are led astray. And he knows that when we are led astray, we are always led astray into foolishness and never wisdom. He knows that even when we see the glorious power of his right arm, as we did in Egypt, and even though he is promising us a more glorious future in a land that we will inhabit and find rest, he knows that we will nonetheless be tempted by cheap imitations of glory. This morning, on Trinity Sunday 2021, we here in this room find ourselves in the exact same place as our forefathers. Christ has thrown down Satan and set us free from the slavery of sin. We have, in a real sense, been delivered from Egypt. He is also promising us a glorious future of perfect resurrection and eternity with him. In the meantime, though, we are told not to be conformed to this present world, but to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We, like our forefathers, are easily tempted to be conformed to this world. We are tempted to talk like the world talks, to consume what the world consumes, to worship what this world worships. But we must not. We must not. We must not watch that TV show or movie the world says is popular. We must not support that politically correct, that, that politically correct cause that is all the rage in the pagan world. We must not follow this trend or that fashion currently in vogue. We must walk in the statutes of our Lord that he has given us because the Lord God, Yahweh, has sent Jesus as our promised deliverer who has set us free from slavery, slavery of the world, and has given us the Holy Spirit as our guarantee. This reminds us of our need to confess our sins, so as you are able, please kneel with me. God and King, we know that we are a people of unclean hands and unclean hearts. Far too often, we have followed after the world's false imitation of joy, of justice, of glory. Even though we have been given total deliverance from our flesh, the world and the devil, we are still tempted and far too often walk after the things of this world. We ask that you would forgive us for our unfaithfulness to you. Forgive us for our craven spirits that fold under the slightest pressure from the world. Forgive us for our rebellious hearts, which we often euphemize as free-spirited, but which nonetheless declares that our ways are best instead of yours. Forgive us for forgetting, forgetting our first love and turning toward the false mockery of love the world celebrates. We ask that you would now hear our individual prayers of confession and say love. We ask all this in the name of Jesus, and amen. Please remain standing as I read to you from Colossians chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. Colossians chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 16 and 17. These are the words of God. But the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, Singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Would you pray with me? 
Most kind and gracious Father, we thank you for the reading of your word. We thank you for the preaching of your word. We thank you for this gathering of saints here. Father, I pray that you would open our ears and our hearts, that we would receive what you have for this church to hear this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Please be seated. Well, it's a joy to be with you all this morning. I've met a handful of you at a variety of different things, but it's great to worship with you here this morning. Very exciting. Very excited for you. As we come to uh, God's Word this morning, our, our sermon is, uh, the title is Armed with Thanksgiving. And what we're going to do is do a, a sort of a survey of a smattering of, of different verses all through Scripture. So if you have your Bibles, be ready to be flipping through. We're going to turn around, uh, turn to many different passages. And the goal is to get a sense of what does this, what is a scriptural view of Thanksgiving? And we'll talk about why as well. Over the kitchen sink at my parents' house, there's a sign that reads, Live, love, laugh, and be thankful. I grew up seeing that every morning, every night, uh, at the dinner table, every morning as I was getting ready for school. And one of the many gifts that my mom gave me was the habit of simply stopping and thanking God for five things when I was in a swamp of grumbling. <laughs> mom, I'm just bored. I don't know what to do. Tyler, you need to stop and you need to write out five things that you're thankful for. Or I'd be complaining about some situation at school or chores that I had to do at home. Whatever it was, tell you, you need to stop. Tell me five things that you're thankful for. As Christians, giving thanks ought to be before our eyes, ought to be on our lips and in our hearts and minds often. Why is this? First of all, it is the only right disposition that we should have as creatures. Everything that you've been given, every heartbeat, every breath is a gift. Well, what do you do when you receive a gift? You give thanks. And so simply as being creatures, as being uh, made by our creator, our disposition, the only right disposition we should have is that of giving thanks. But secondly, as creatures and as children of God, even more so, what gift have you been given? You've been given salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. You've been given freedom from your sins. You've been given a new heart and a new nature. Again, this is the only right disposition then that we ought to have. So first of all, it's the, the only right disposition that we should have. This is why we should be thankful in all things. And then secondly, if this is true, that this is the right disposition that we should have, I think we can see that thanksgiving is an effective weapon or an antidote against the remaining sin in our lives. And so, this is what I want to do this morning. We're going to look at a number of verses that describe what Thanksgiving is. Help us to have an understanding of, of what it is. Because, this is in part because Thanksgiving is not something in the void. Right? You can even hear from many secular uh, teachers, secular businesses. You go to Home Goods or some store, you go to Ross, and you find a sign that says something like, What hangs, hangs over my mom's sink? Live, love, laugh, and be thankful. But be thankful to whom? Be thankful for what? You can't just be thankful in the void. That thanksgiving ought to be directed to someone. Why? Because you are giving thanks. So who is it, who is it directed to? Well, we're going to look at that this morning. So first of all, we want to understand that thanksgiving is not primarily an attitude or a feeling. Being thankful is not primarily an attitude or a feeling. It is first and foremost an acknowledgement of our dependence upon God. 
And this acknowledgement then leads to actions and expressions of thankfulness, things like prayers and feasting and worship. But this is really important because, again, go back to the example of, of this wonderful habit that my mother gave me. Why, when you are grumbling, should you stop and give thanks for a few things? Well, it's not because you feel thankful. Right? It's, it's because you need to feel thankful. You time that better with the tree. Okay, so... We need to be thankful. We need to feel thankful. And one of the ways that we do that is by training ourselves in thankfulness. So first of all, let's look at Leviticus 7. We're going to start there this morning. Leviticus chapter 7. And I think I have all these verses uh, for you in your sermon notes. Um, so if you want to uh, reference them later or follow along and take notes as you go, you should be able to do that there. So Leviticus chapter 7 Verses 11 through 14. This is a description of one of the sacrifices, one of the regular sacrifices that would have been given in the tabernacle and later in the temple. This is the law of the sacrifice of peace offerings, which he, he, the priest, shall offer to the Lord. If he offers it for a thanksgiving, then he shall offer with the sacrifice of thanksgiving unleavened cakes mixed with oil, unleavened wafers anointed with oil, or cakes of blended flour mixed with oil. Besides the cakes as his offering, he shall offer leavened bread with the sacrifice of thanksgiving of his peace offering. So there we see we're talking about a sacrifice of thanksgiving. And from it, this is verse 14, he shall offer one cake from each offering as a heave offering to the Lord. It shall belong to the priest who sprinkles the blood of the peace offering. And this is the main uh, point of this passage I want us to see. Verse 15, the flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offering for thanksgiving shall be eaten the same day it is offered. He shall not leave any of it until morning. And Thanksgiving offering was a part of the, or one of the kinds of peace offerings that, the, that an offerer would bring to the temple, and then the priest would um, slay the animal and offer it before the Lord. The peace offering would have um, come after the individual or the people were made right with God. So in the liturgy of the Old Testament, in the liturgy of the temple system, you would have a, a number of other sacrifices that were about the confession of sins, being made right with God. And then at the end of those sacrifices, you'd have a final sacrifice, which was the peace offering. And one type of peace offering had a specific, uh, was, um, had a, a specific a sense to it of thanksgiving. This was a thanksgiving offering. This is because the offer has come before the Lord, he has been made right with God, and now he has fellowship with God again. He's been able to draw close to God once again. And what's fascinating about this is that drawing close to God results in something in this, in this offering. It results in a big feast. You bring a calf or a sheep or a goat, and you bring it to the Lord, and you offer it, and then you have to eat all of it. You can't leave any of it until the morning. Thanksgiving with God, coming before the Lord with Thanksgiving, is a, a required party. It's a required barbecue. Amen, somebody? Yeah. Right? It, this is something that um, God wants us to do. We come into his presence, we confess our sins, we're made right with God, and then we come and we enjoy fellowship with him. We see this in our own Lord's Day service when we come to the Lord's Supper. At the end of our service, we come into fellowship with God and we have communion with Him and fellowship with Him. Um, another thing to note here, this is, one of, again, one of the peace offerings. 
And Thanksgiving is tied to peace several times in the New Testament as well. In, uh, we'll look at these later, but in Philippians 4 and in Colossians 3, peace, the peace of God is directly tied to giving thanks. So we see this uh, from early on in Scripture, that the Thanksgiving offering is about coming into fellowship with God and having peace with Him. Okay, secondly, we'll look briefly at 2 Chronicles chapter 31. This is in the reign of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was um, one of the good kings of Judah. And Hezekiah, if, if you remember the story of Hezekiah, he's the one who is um, the king when Sennacherib and the Assyrian army come before the gates of Jerusalem, and they're this powerful, intimidating army, and Hezekiah has no idea what to do. And so he comes before the Lord, lays this letter that the um, general of the, of the Assyrian army had sent to him, sets it before the Lord, asks for the Lord to deliver them. The Lord does deliver them. They wake up in the morning and the Assyrian army is, is annihilated. They've all been killed by a plague. Okay, so this is this Hezekiah. Now in the context of this, Hezekiah also brings great reforms to the worship of the Lord. Leading up to Hezekiah, there were a number of kings that had allowed idolatry to take root in the people of Israel. And so Hezekiah is, um, takes great steps to change and reform and take the people back to the way that they ought to have been worshiping God, including the way that they were offering sacrifices. So if you look at chapter 31, verse 2, this is in the middle of all of this, the things that Hezekiah did. Hezekiah, actually look back up to verse 1. Now when all this was finished, all the things that Hezekiah had done, um, keeping the Passover with the people having um, them confess their sins, all Israel who were present went out to the cities of Judah and broke the sacred pillars in pieces. They cut down the wooden images and threw down the high places and the altars. It's a big idol throwdown throughout all of Israel and Judah, or through all of Judah. Until they had utterly destroyed them all. Then all the children of Israel returned to their own cities, every man to his possession. And Hezekiah appointed the divisions of the priests and the Levites according to their divisions, each man according to his service. The priests and the Levites for burnt offerings and peace offerings, which we had just looked at in Leviticus. To serve, to give thanks, and to praise in the gates of the camp of the Lord. So what do we see here? We see that Hezekiah comes to the throne after years of idolatry. After this reformation, or as part of this reformation and revival in his reign, the king appoints the priest to offer sacrifices and specifies that they are to give thanks as part of this offering. Idols were torn down, right worship was reestablished, and this was all accompanied by great thanksgiving. And like we saw in Leviticus, the implication is great feasting. So when reformation takes place, when there's great conviction of sin, repentance of sin, the response is worship and thanksgiving and feasting. Let's look now at Psalm 100. Psalm 100 is a wonderful uh, song about coming into the Lord's presence for worship. We're going to look specifically at verses 3 and 4. So in the middle of this psalm, Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who has made us and not we ourselves. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Enter into His gates with thanksgiving and into His courts with praise. Be thankful to Him and bless His name. 
We come before God's presence acknowledging that God is God and that we are not. That's what this psalm says. Know that the Lord, He is God. He has made us and not we ourselves. So, coming to God's presence. What are we doing here this morning? One of the things you're doing is acknowledging that you are not God. You are acknowledging that the Lord is God. Um, as Frank mentioned in his prayer, we're acknowledging that he is in control of everything in our lives. He is orchestrating everything perfectly to draw us to himself, to conform us to the image of Christ. But it's in the context of this, then, that the psalmist calls for God's people to enter the Lord's gates with thanksgiving and with praise. We thank him because he is good, because his mercy is everlasting, because his truth endures to all generations. So what is thanksgiving? Thanksgiving is coming into the presence of the Lord and having come, giving thanks for who God is, for the fact that you are not God. And giving thanks because He is God and you are not God. What a glorious truth that is, that I am not God. Amen. This is what thanksgiving is. Another place to look, Jonah chapter 2. you're looking in your Bible, Jonah comes shortly after all the big prophets. So Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, and then there's a couple small ones, and then Jonah, so you'll find it right in there. Jonah chapter 2. Remember the story of Jonah. God tells Jonah, go to Nineveh and preach to them a message, a, a message of repentance. And Jonah says, no way. And he flees from the presence of the Lord. The context for for the story of Jonah, remember that the Assyrians are the enemies of Israel. And the Assyrians, Nineveh was one of the um, uh, main cities of the Assyrians. And and God's basically telling Jonah, go to your worst enemies, the people that have enslaved your people throughout the years in different, uh, different stages, and go and preach to them a gospel of repentance. And Jonah says, no way. There's no way I'm going to go to those people. And he flees from the Lord. God then uh, sends a great storm and uh, and traps the ship that Jonah is on. And Jonah gets thrown off the boat and gets swallowed by a great fish. And while he's in the belly of the fish, have you ever stopped to think about that for just a moment, right? He's in the belly of a fish. (laughs) And what is Jonah doing there? He's praying. He's offering a hymn to the Lord. Is Jonah, yeah, there's always a question of did Jonah actually die? Is this, is this a picture, is this a story of actual death and resurrection? If not, it's at least a picture of death and resurrection. Jonah's in the deepest part of the sea, in the deepest part of a deep fish, right? He is as dead as dead could be, at least in one sense. And it's there that he prays to the Lord. Look at chapter 2, verse 2. He said, I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction, and he answered me. We know that the Lord ends up answering Jonah by causing the fish to vomit him back out onto the ground. Yeah, that's resurrection for you, right? It's messy. Okay, but, but the Lord answers him, and what is Jonah's prayer? Well, what part of Jonah's prayer, if you look at verses 8 and 9, 7, 8, and 9, Jonah says, when my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord. When I was in the belly of the fish, and there was no hope, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer went up to Him, into your holy temple. 
And this is what Jonah reflects on as he's remembering the Lord. Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy. Those who worship idols have no mercy. There's no mercy for them. There's no mercy for those who worship idols. But, Jonah says, I will sacrifice to you. What's he going to sacrifice? He's in the belly of a fish. He's not near the temple. What's he going to sacrifice? With the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. Jonah prays from the belly of the fish, and he ends his prayer by declaring that he will sacrifice to Yahweh with thanksgiving. He contrasts this with those who, because of their idolatry, forsake any hope of mercy. And this is true when we're talking about idolatry in the formal sense, worshiping, bowing down to a graven image, sort of this pagan idolatry. This is true in our own hearts. How many idols do we have? Are idols of self, idols of material things, idols of our image, idols of our convenience, of our safety, of our health? Any of a number of things can be idols to us. And when we regard those worthless idols, to regard them means to set them up as God in your heart. When you give way to idols, what are you doing? You're forsaking your own mercy. Someone who has not followed the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have not bowed down to the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and as Savior, you are forsaking mercy. Because the wages of our sin is death. The wages of our idolatry, whether it's of ourself or of, of uh, graven images or any of a number of things, the wages of that, the payment that we receive from that is death. But Paul says the gift of God is the gift, or the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. When we turn to idols, we forsake our own mercy. We forsake the opportunity for mercy. We forsake the one who is mercy. And this Jonah contrasts with thanksgiving. Turning to Christ, turning to the Lord Jesus Christ, is thanksgiving. It's giving thanks that he has saved you, that he has paid the price for your sin and given you new life. Romans chapter 1. And again, so as we look at all these things, again, we want to be seeing that Thanksgiving is not an attitude or a feeling, and that's normally how we think of it. Thanksgiving is a disposition. It's a positioning of ourselves and an understanding of who we are and who God is. Romans chapter 1. This is sort of a, 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 a converse example here. Romans chapter 1, verse 21. This is talking about the pagans who... Though God has revealed himself in creation to them, they have not worshipped the Lord. Paul says that they are without excuse because, verse 21, although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. Joe mentioned earlier in the call to worship that sin makes us stupid. And that's exactly right. Sin makes us stupid. Our thoughts become futile. And our hearts are darkened in foolishness. And this is contrasted with glorifying God as God. But not just that. It would be enough for Paul to say, 
they did not glorify the Lord as God. And that's what's wrong with all the pagans, right? We can see that. We understand that. They're worshiping idols. They're not glorifying God as God. And so they are without excuse. But Paul adds to that. It's not just that they weren't worshiping God, not just that they weren't glorifying God, but they weren't thankful. That should strike us. That should convict us. What are the pagans guilty, right? Those pagans who don't know Christ, who have not bowed the knee to Christ, who practice all kinds of wickedness, what's their problem? They're not thankful. How do you measure up? Are you guilty of the same thing that those who don't follow the Lord Jesus Christ are guilty of? Far too often, yes. And far too often, yes. Unlike Jonah, the psalmist, uh, we looked at Psalm 100, we looked at Jonah, those who offer right worship to the Lord, the pagans reject God, not because they could not know Him, but because they refuse to honor Him as God and to thank Him. And so, Paul makes this very clear again. Because of this ingratitude, they become fools. Sin makes you stupid, so does unthankfulness. Unthankfulness makes you stupid and foolish in your heart. Ingratitude towards God leads to irrationality. Ingratitude towards God leads to a lack of common sense. Sin is irrational, and it stems from ingratitude. Okay, one other uh, passage, or a couple other passages to look at here briefly as we set up what Thanksgiving is. We're going to flip back to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 8. We can easily, again, we, we can see clearly that the pagans are idolaters. In Romans chapter 1, they don't glorify God as God. But this idea of giving thanks is something that God does command to his people. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 8. I'm not going to read this whole passage, but to set it up, verses 11 through the end of the chapter. Is God instructing the people to be careful that they do not forget the Lord their God and His commandments? And why should they not forget Him? Because of all that He has done for them. Because He's delivered them out of Egypt. He's delivered them out of bondage. He's delivered them um, through the wilderness. They're about to go inherit the promised land. And He's going to give them all kinds of things that they did not earn. He's going to give them fields they didn't plant. He's going to give them homes that they didn't build. They're going to walk into the promised land and receive it all. And God says, be careful that when this happens, you do not forget the Lord your God. So look at verse uh, 17. When this happens, when you come into this land, be careful so that you don't say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gained me this wealth. And you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth that he may establish his covenant, which he swore to your fathers, as it is this day. Then it shall be, if you by any means forget the Lord your God, and here I would include with forgetting the Lord your God, not giving him thanks, because what are they forgetting? All the things that he has given to them and done for them, his commandments that he has given them. Then it shall be, if by any means you forget the Lord your God and follow after other gods. There again you see unthankfulness and idolatry tied together. And serve them and worship them. I testify against you this day that you shall surely perish. What does unthankfulness lead to? Unthankfulness leads to idolatry. 
and condemnation. Apart from the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, your unthankfulness is deserving only of hell. You're unthankful. I mean, how often do we stop and think about that? We're, we're um, as Christians, as people have grown up in the church, we're comfortable with saying that things like sexual sin or lying and stealing and murder, those things are deserving of hell. But God says your unthankful heart, your unthankfulness, your ingratitude is an offense to him. Revelation chapter 11. One last passage in this section here. I know we're bouncing around all over the place, so hang in there with me. Revelation chapter 11. This is in the prophecy that was given to John, the vision that's given to John. He's seeing all these wonders take place in heaven. And look at verse, uh, chapter 11, verse, I'll start in verse 15. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God. Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come because you have taken your great power and reign. When Jesus is declared to be Lord, when he's declared to be King of kings and Lord of lords, he's declared to be Almighty God, when he ascends to the right hand of the Father, the response of the angels, the elders, and the response of the church is to give great thanks. We thank you, O Lord, because you have taken your great power and reign. When Jesus is proclaimed king, we give thanks. We see this also in the Lord's Prayer. When we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're praying with great thanksgiving that God is God. That Jesus Christ is Lord. We offer this prayer with thanksgiving knowing that he truly does have all authority. So this is what thanksgiving is. Thanksgiving is this disposition towards God. Knowing who I am, knowing that I am not God, that God is God, that I give thanks to Him as His creature and as one who has been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Thanksgiving, in addition to being this sort of position, positioning of ourselves towards God, I think it's also something then that we can use, something we can wield. Um, like all virtues, Thankfulness is not something which just happens. Thankfulness, like all virtues, is something that is cultivated. It's practiced. And so it's something that we ought to practice in our lives. Gratitude is inseparably intertwined with the worship of God. And I hope you've seen that as we've looked at these different passages. With an acknowledgement of our dependence on Him and a right understanding of ourselves. And this means... That it is a God-given tool or weapon or antidote or supplanter to combat the sin in our life. And it's fitting then for any sin. If thanksgiving is about understanding who you are in relationship to God. If thanksgiving is, is connected with worship, then thanksgiving is fit to battle any sin in your life. The big sins and the little sins. It is a tool, and you'll see this in, as you read through Scripture and look for this, but it's a tool used to fight all kinds of different things. It's the response that we ought to have when, when we're convicted with sin, and how do we turn away from this sin? We turn away from this sin with thanksgiving. We replace it with thanksgiving. 
So a few passages to look at with regards to this. 1 Corinthians 4, 7. Um, don't, you don't need to turn there. But Paul is um, arguing, he doesn't use the term thanksgiving here, but he's saying to the Corinthians, what do you have, what have you been given that you did not receive? Thanksgiving is an antidote to boasting. Because it's acknowledging that everything that I have been given, every bit of understanding that I have, everything, of, uh, all of my possessions, it's not something that I earned. Even if you're, you're sort of the self-made man, right? All of those things, the ability to be that self-made man, the ability to pull yourself up and to work hard, where did all of that come from? It's only the gift of God. So, Thanksgiving is the antidote, it's the tool to fight against boasting, against pride in your life and of yourself. 1 Corinthians 15. Do go ahead and turn to this one. 1 Corinthians 15 is a great chapter in, uh, in the New Testament about the resurrection, about Christ's resurrection, and then about the final resurrection to come. At the end of the chapter, verses uh, 54 through the end of the chapter, Paul addresses um, this idea that uh, the, the corruptible, our corruptible bodies are going to put on the incorruption. And in, in the process of this, he says, or he basically mocks death. Mocks death to its face. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? That's Paul talking smack to death, right? The sting of death is sin, Paul says, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul mocks death because of Christ's victory. And, and what's his response as he's doing that? He's giving thanks. Death no longer has its sting. Hades is not victorious because Jesus has, raised, has been raised from the dead. And so Paul gives thanks. And so us too, when we are faced with life-threatening circumstances, Christians similarly should give thanks. Claiming the victory of Christ. This is not sort of a health and wealth, name it, claim it sort of thing. But whose are you? Are you in Christ? Then there's no fear of death. And not because you're not going to die, but because you know what will happen when you do. You know in whose hand you are. There's great confidence and boldness. No fear of death. But this comes hand in hand with giving thanks. How do you want to, do you want to grow in courage? Do you want to grow in boldness? In being somebody who's not afraid of the things that may come? How do you do that? Well, give thanks, like Paul does. This is true with regards to physical threats in our lives as well as spiritual threats. We fight fear and despair in any of a number of levels or forms with thanksgiving. And if this is true with regards to death, how much more with the smaller things in our lives? More on this later. Ephesians chapter 5. Verse 4 says, verses 3 and 4 says, But all fornication and uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. 
Paul shows that we fight against fornication, against covetousness, against lust, against filthiness, against filthy talking with the giving of thanks. How do you battle that lust in your heart? How do you battle that filthy mouth that you just can't stop? How do you battle that covetous heart, that envy? You just look across the row at that person, that family, that man, that woman, those kids, and you can't help but turning green on the inside. How do you fight that? You fight that with giving thanks. All of those things. You fight that with giving thanks. This is what should characterize the church rather than those things which Paul mentions that so often characterize the world. And as, if you look a little further in chapter 5, we'll notice that this is also closely associated with thanksgiving, or that, with singing. Look at verse 20. This is where Paul's talking about um, uh, seeking wisdom from above. Do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Okay, so don't be drunk with wine in which you lose your mind and you have no control, but instead be filled with the Spirit, because the Spirit brings wisdom. And we do this in singing and speaking to one another in psalms and spiritual songs, singing. And then verse 20, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. We give thanks always for all things in the Father or to the Father in the name of Jesus. Now here's a question. Paul here is tying together speaking and singing psalms and hymns singing, making melody in your hearts, and giving thanks. Is the speaking psalms and hymns, singing, is that the way in which we are thankful? Does it produce thankfulness? Or is it um, just associated with it? Or is it the, the evidence of being filled with the Spirit? Or is it the means by which we are filled with the Spirit? I think the text here is ambiguous. It's, it's hard to tell. Um, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And then there's all these things that go along with that. Singing, making melody in your hearts to the Lord, singing hymns and psalms, and giving thanks. Is this the evidence of the Spirit in you, or is it the means by which the Spirit is in you? I think it's both. If we remember that giving thanks is fundamentally not a feeling, then at least we can say it is both. It's both the means that God grants the Spirit in your heart. Right? You're, you're grumbling and complaining. You're lusting. You're covetous. You're murderous in your heart towards your brother. What do you need? You need the Holy Spirit. Amen. Right? You need the Holy Spirit to fill your heart and your mind. How do you, how, how do you get that? We know as Christians the Spirit's been granted to us, but, it, it, but it, I, He's not here right now. I like it. What has to change? Well, start giving thanks. Start singing the psalms. That's the means by which God grants you the Spirit again and again and again. And not only that, it's the evidence that the Spirit is at work in you. Giving thanks, singing the psalms. We fight against all of these sins by giving thanks. Philippians 4, 6 and 7 Paul tells the Philippians, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. 
let your request be made known to God. And the result of this is that the peace of God, which surpasses understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. We fight anxiety, right? Everybody, we need to stop and realize this too. Anxiety, being anxious, is contrary to the word of God. God says, Paul says, be anxious just for the really big things. No, he doesn't say that. He says, don't be anxious for the really big things, but if you're worried about you know, how things are going at home right now, that's okay. It's just a little thing. No, he doesn't say that either. He says, be anxious for nothing. Why? Well, because God is God and you are not. He holds everything in his hands. Everything is going exactly according to plan. It's his perfect will, and it's perfect not just because he's perfect, and because he's up in heaven, it's perfectly what he wants, but it's also perfect for you. He's in control of everything for you. And so when Paul says, be anxious for nothing, he's talking about all of those things, all those things in your life, in your heart, in your mind, that cause you to be anxious. But the way we respond to that, how do we fight that? Okay, so be anxious for nothing, don't do this, Okay, so if I'm not going to do that, what am I going to do instead? Paul says, go to God with prayer and supplication, but do it with thanksgiving. With thanksgiving. And the result of that, again, is peace that comes. Giving thanks fights against anxiety, and it brings peace. Matthew Henry says uh, of this passage, we must join thanksgiving with our prayers and supplications. We must not only seek supplies of good... We must not only um, seek after God asking Him for things, that's good, but we should not just seek supplies of God's goodness, but also we should own receipts of mercy. What has God done? Remember what He has done. In, in my house, the 5 o'clock hour is probably the most strenuous time of the day. Right? So at 5 o'clock, 4.45... What does my family need to be practicing? We need to remember what God has done. What has He done for you? What has He done for you in your heart? What has He given you? He's given you life in Christ. What has He done for you today? How has He preserved you? How has He blessed you? How has He strengthened you? How has He taught you to resist the devil and the world? How has he, what are all the things He's given to you? Stop and give thanks for five things. Five o'clock is coming. Okay, what, what, is that, what is that point in your day? What's that point in your life? Where do you need to stop and give thanks? Where you need to own receipts of mercy? I'm going back to my, through my um, accounting books and I'm looking at what has God given me? I need to own those receipts of mercy because he has poured out so much upon us we can't even begin to thank him for all of it. You always have a surplus of things to give thanks for. Thankful prayer brings the peace of Christ. Because it redirects us to see that God is God and we are not. Okay, two more passages to look at briefly. Colossians 3, 15 and 17. These are the, the verses that we read at the beginning here. Again, we see Paul tying together the peace of God, thankfulness, and singing. Okay, so this shows up more than once in Scripture. That means you should pay attention. Okay, thankfulness, the peace of God, and singing. They go together. Are you anxious? Do you need the peace of God? Well, thank, giving thanks and singing psalms is how you are going to get that. 
That's, that's the means by which God grants it. Paul says, let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which you were also called in one body, and be thankful. Okay? Let the peace of God rule in your hearts, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do, whatever you do, whether it's in your words, how you're speaking to your spouse, how you're speaking to your children, how you're speaking to your parents or your siblings or your co-workers, or in your deeds, how you treat the people around you. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. How in the world am I going to do that? How in the world am I going to actually bring every word on my lips, every thought in my mind, every action with my hands, how am I going to bring all of that and do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus? By giving thanks to God the Father through Him. By giving thanks. We are to wield this tool, this weapon, constantly. Mm -hmm. Lastly, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16-18. One of the most punchy lines that Paul has in all of his writings. One of the most convicting that he has. And one of the most encouraging and inspiring. Rejoice always. Pretty in fact. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Now, now by that, I don't think that Paul means um, if you're stopping here and you're listening to me instead of praying, you're disobeying. That's not what Paul means. But he does mean that in everything that you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Do it all before God. Do it all with prayer. Be in constant conversation with your Lord. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks. In everything. When it's good, when it's hard. When you don't understand. When you can't win. Stop and give thanks. Why? This is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. What's God's will for your life? God's will for your life is the joy that comes from rejoicing always, praying without ceasing, giving thanks in all things. God wants great joy for you. He loves you. He, he loves you so much he poured out his son for you. And so when he calls you to rejoice always, to pray, to give thanks in everything, it's because he has the most wonderful things for you. Remembering God, remembering that God is good and that he is a good father is one of the keys to being thankful and fighting sin. Okay, so how do you become a thankful person? If ingratitude is tied to idolatry, if ingratitude is... The sin, the ingratitude makes us foolish. How do we turn from that? Again, like most virtues, it's something that must be cultivated and practiced. It's something which normally will be more and more evident in your life the longer that you do it, the longer that you are sanctified by the Holy Spirit, the longer that you pursue Christ. And so start practicing it now. Start practicing it when it seems like it doesn't matter. 
How many of you, when you got up and you took a shower this morning, stopped and gave thanks for the hot water? Not only hot water, but as hot as you wanted it. Hot or cold, right in the middle. And generally speaking, for as long as you wanted or needed, it didn't run out. And if it did, did you stop and give thanks? Because that was from God as well. right? Stop and give thanks for these little things that we take for granted. Not because we want to live, love, laugh, and be thankful out in the void. But because we want to be thankful to the one who has granted us all of these things. Make a habit of thanking God for seemingly insignificant things. When was the last time you stopped and gave thanks for these? How much do you use these every day? How much can you do with them every day? And they're amazing. Right? You get all the engineers, and I'm totally stealing this from somebody else who, who uses this analogy, but it's so good. Right? How many en engineers, you give all the engineers and scientists in the world, all the money in the world, and could they come up with one of these? No. And you get two of them. For free. With a self-repair kit. Right? You cut them, you wrap them up, and they heal themselves. Did you stop and give thanks for these this morning? Make a habit of stopping and giving thanks for the things that seem insignificant because you'll start to realize that these things are not, in fact, insignificant. And this, in turn, will cause you to be more and more thankful for them. And then, when it is hard to be thankful, because it is hard to be thankful, it is hard. There are hard circumstances, hard trials, hard battles, hard lifelong battles, whether it's with your sin, with your health, with your circumstances. When these things come, you will have a habit of giving thanks in, the pla in, place, in a place where you can lean on it. Give thanks for the little things so that you're learning to give thanks in the great and hard things. Godly thankfulness is not a fake cheerfulness, on the one hand, or a stoic coldness on the other. It is an alignment of ourselves to God as our Creator and Father. It's a disposition between us and God, understanding who He is. We thank Him because He is in control, and because we do believe Him when He says that He works all things together for our good. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God works all things together for your good? Well, He's proven it to you by sending His Son to die for you. Do you believe it? And if so, then give thanks. Let's pray to God. Most kind and gracious Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what it teaches us. Thank you that you talk about thanksgiving so much in your word. Teach us to think on this, to apply it to our lives as we go into this week. Help us to do this by the power of your spirit and doing it recognizing that we owe you everything and that this should, grant, this should cause us to give great thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.